This is Akash Pandey, and you're listening to South Asians Love Rap. Stories from people who look like me, set to the music that moves them. I'm sharing an episode today that's actually an interview I did with Mano Sundaresan with Joseph Patel. If you heard the last bonus episode, Mano was my last guest, and Joseph was my first guest on this show. This was done in the run-up to the Oscars when Joseph was an Oscar-nominated producer. If you've been following, he's now an Oscar-winning producer and a Grammy-winning producer and BAFTA and many, many other awards. Uh, Back when he appeared as a guest on South Asians Love Rap, he was working on the film Summer of Soul. So it's really exciting that in this conversation, we got to dig into the film a little bit more and talk a little bit about his journey, his path as a creative person. Hope you enjoy. Please do go check out Nobel's radio, subscribe to the podcast Mono's Running, and check out some of the content on the Nobel's blog. The movie has come out and it's almost taken on a life of its own where there's all these reactions pouring in from like, I never knew this happened to people who are like, that's my family member in the crowd to, you know, folks who are seeing themselves as part of history for the first time. So what's been like the most unexpected or surprising reaction for you as the the reception to the movie has played out? Uh, The most surprising part of it is the critical reception. I... I, I knew we made a film that we were proud of and that we were happy with and that we thought other people uh, from Harlem, people who like music, um, black folks who recognize uh, parts of their history that get ignored, uh, we, we, we knew they would love the film. I think the surprise part has been that across the board, critics have loved it too. Mm. Not that that surprises me. Mm-hmm. It's just... What's surprising me is the unanimous feeling of joy that people are feeling. People who love music, people who don't love music, critics, fans, um, people who went to theaters, people who watch stuff on their phones. Across the board, Mm -hmm. people love this film. And I think what's crazy is that, you know, we got accepted to Sundance and I thought that was the best thing that would ever happen. And then we won Sundance and I thought that was the best thing that would ever happen. And then our film got bought and I thought that was the best thing that would ever happen. Here we are at almost the end of our journey, um, nominated for an Oscar in a really tough category with four other great films, a lot of South Asians in that category too, which has been a a real dream for me. Um, And it's just gotten better and better and better. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I I know one one thing you joked about somewhere is that the the movie's really hitting the auntie demographic. Yeah. And... uh, one thing I know Mano and I are curious about is whether you feel like enough young people are resonating or engaging with it. Yeah, I think so. And I think I think for a couple of reasons. I think one is there's a lot of similarities between what's happening 50 years ago and what's happening now. I think that, um, you know, that's one of the things that I think makes this story so rich is that a lot's changed and a lot hasn't changed. Um Second of all, I think the music that we're talking about and the artists that are in the film are kind of universal, right? Stevie Wonder, Nina Simone, Max Roach and Abby Lincoln, Sly and the Family Stone. These are these are classic artists that don't have a demographic, right? Um, you know, I discovered Stevie Wonder when I was 17 years old, and it just it's like seeing color for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, Nina Simone is such a powerful influence on so many 
young people when they discover her at and 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 different people discover different periods of her career right so i think i think a lot of the artists that we're talking about do sort of resonate with young people not in the cheesy pop star way but in in a in a real um you know real sort of emotional way yeah i mean so like the question i had about about this was what was the re- reaction from like brown people like if there was one like was there a specific like your family even or like your relatives like was did you sort of think about them at all in this um i don't think there's like a specific south asian reaction to this film i think there's a specific south asian reaction to me and to my presence in it my family you know my parents immigrated here in 1971 and they had me and throughout my entire youth um you know like a lot of kids of immigrants my parents wanted me to be a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer or in finance and i resisted that i went into the arts and that's something i fought my parents on every day until my 30s really and then to suddenly reach the peak of your field and to be recognized as being at the top of your field and have my mother get up at 5.15 in the morning to watch the Oscar nominations, see us get nominated and then text me how proud she is of me. Like that's an insane journey. (laughs) I cried for three hours because that's all I could think about. And how proud they were of me, how proud their friends were of me. Um, and And then the weirdest thing happened. GQ India... And the Times of India each did an interview with me. And um, all I heard about for the next few days after those two stories came out, they came out on the same day, which is odd, uh, is all my parents, relatives and friends on WhatsApp are sharing this story. All my cousins are sharing this story. So I think there's a lot of pride um, amongst my family specifically. And I think, I hope other South Asians that one of them has reached this pinnacle of, of the field. And I think, you know, the thing I keep thinking about is uh, if I win an Oscar, if we're lucky enough to win an Oscar, I will be the first Patel to ever win an Oscar. And that's crazy to think about. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, and, and, and the other part is in the documentary category this year, you have Flea, which is executive produced by Riz Ahmed and Saroosh Alvi. Mm-hmm. You have Riding with Fire, which is a tremendous movie with mm. a, by two Indian directors. And my friend Anu is an executive producer on that film. And, and me on Summer of Soul, we're all in the same category. It's a shame that one of us has to win. <laughs> Obviously, there's sort of the institutional, like going to finance, going to et cetera, et cetera, doctor, whatever that's, that's holding us back. But do you think there's a question of also like mentorship? Like, I mean, do you th- did you have anyone who looked like you growing up that, that might fill those shoes or that you could look, you know, be like, I could be like that guy one day or that person one day? No. And that's, I think why this moment means so much to me, right? Is that yeah. I-, I couldn't look out into Hollywood and, f- and see a South Asian person who was doing something and point to my parents and say, I want to do that. And if my presence on this stage can be that for somebody else, then the whole thing works. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? That, then we're, we're, we're playing with house money at that point. Because, and, and that's the thing is increasingly in the last 10 years, 
you see more and more South Asians behind the camera and in front of the camera. I didn't have that growing up. And I think that it's it's easier to have the conversation now if you're a South Asian child of immigrants to say, I want to go into the movie industry. I want to make movies. There's a dozen people you can point to now. Yeah. And and I think that's um I don't think one's better than the other. It's just it's a it's a it's a lineage. It's a it's the continuity is there. So um, you know, if if I can be that person now for somebody who says I want to produce documentaries, then uh, then that's pretty cool. I want to ask a question on this front cuz uh I your your buddy Hwasu wrote this piece last week about the model minority myth and how a lot of Asian Americans internalize it and kind of measure ourselves up against are we high achievers feel shame or pride against that model and i wonder for you is like high achievement something that you've been chasing like this level of achievement been something that you've been chasing or has it been like an unexpected surprise to to receive this level of acclaim um it's not something i've been chasing at all um i i think that's part of the thing is um what determined success to our parents, or at least my parents of their generation, was not being rich. It wasn't winning awards. It was, do you have a secure job that you will always have work? Do you have a family? Are you married? Do you have children? Um, that was success. That's the model minority myth for it, for it, for South Asians, Indians specifically. Um, and I and I never, um, you know, my ride has been bumpy. I was freelancing for a long time. I then worked at places and, you know, uh, was able to live and work on my own and then, you know, went freelance again. And, you know, I think the unpredictability of it is what freaks our parents out. Mm. It's not it's not the oh, you're not winning awards. You're not nominated for an Oscar. But, you know, our parents love to point to someone on TV and say, oh, look, why can't you be more like him? <laughs> and it's like, you know, and it, and it's, it's that's always there. And I've never chased that. And so that's what I think is so emotionally overwhelming for me right now is that we didn't, we didn't set out to make, this is my first film, my first featured documentary. I didn't set out to win an Oscar. Like, we... But I think what I've learned in my career and in my life is make the thing that you want to see, make the thing that mm-hmm. you're proud of. Um, it's, you know, I, when I was a rap critic, like I always criticized artists that felt like they were chasing something where you could hear it. I, I much preferred the outcast model, which was just be you. Do mm. you and do it as weird and as, as good as you can. And people will come. Um I think the challenge is to yourself is uh, this is the first film that I made where I didn't rely on my usual creative crutches of drugs and alcohol and self-abuse and staying up till six in the morning writing in a fever dream. Um, This is the first uh, project where the tools that I learned in therapy to be better to myself and to love myself more uh, I put into practice. And one of the most uh, fulfilling things for me is that I proved to myself that being a better human, being better to yourself, loving yourself, taking care of yourself yields just as creative results, if not more creative results than all those things that we sort of trick ourselves into thinking make us more creative. And to me, that is the most 
fulfilling part about this whole journey. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Yeah, for real. We have a couple questions about the, the film itself and, and just want to uh, start with something that I heard about Amir's motivation being kind of wanting to make this for his younger self that didn't know about it and that would have been impacted by the knowledge and, and just the in, engagement with this type of festival. And so I'm curious, like, what motivated you to sign on and <laughs> what, what was your why? For me, it was... Um... I've done a lot of cool things in my life as a producer, as a director, as an executive producer, as a writer. Um, I've made television. I've worked on shorts. I've done music videos and commercials and branded content and a variety of, you know, been the head of creative at a variety of media outlets. Um, but if we met on an airplane uh, and you said, what do you do? And I said, producer and director, you'd be like, well, what have you done that I've watched? And I didn't have one of those in my portfolio, in my in my CV. And I always wanted one of those because yeah. it wouldn't have defined me, but it would have been made what I do a lot more easier to recognize. And also, I've never played on the biggest playing fields. I've 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 been in very small pockets where I feel comfortable. I wanted to challenge myself out to get out of my comfort zone and play on a bigger playing field and see if I had not only the talent for it but also the the skill it takes to sort of uh operate at a high level and um and so i was sort of looking for a project like that this came to me um you know i talked to amir about why he wanted to do it and his answer was really important because if it was just something he was going to check off his list of jobs then I don't know if I want to do that i needed to know he was invested in telling the story for the right reasons once that once I felt assured of that, I was like, I'm ready to take that leap of faith. And also, how many times in your life do you get an opportunity to work with one of your musical heroes in such an intimate way and such a, you know, something that's really challenging for him? Like, we'll always have this journey together now. And and I thought that was a real um, cool thing, you know, uh, to, to get to experience. And so, um, and, then, and then the last part of it for me was, I wanted to create something that my parents would be proud of. You know, having a movie in the theaters is something that they could be proud of. One yeah. of the one of the first times my parents really understood what I did for a living was when they saw my name on television when I was producing at MTV and at the end of every show it'd say produced by Joseph Patel or directed by Joseph Patel. And that was cool for them. They sort of understood that, oh, you're making this thing that we're watching on television that our friends can watch. And um, you know, I wanted to make something that could be that again uh, for them. And so all of that sort of combined into the reason why. And I think if you look at all those reasons, like for me, you get a little bit of insight into like what motivates me to do things now. Yeah. Joseph, what was the hardest part about making this film? All of it. <laughs> <laughs> Every single thing. Um Damn. Yeah, it's the hardest thing I ever worked on for a lot of reasons. Um, I think one of the f hardest things is that we're working with source material that's 50 years old. Right. The festival was shot on two-inch videotape. How do you digitize two-inch videotape? Well, yeah. that took about six weeks to find the right person. Uh, the tapes were not organized in a way... They, they, pro they were organized in a way back when they were shot, but... 
through the years, some paperwork had been lost and Mm. there was no guide for us to say, well, what is this tape and how does it fit into the context of the whole festival and everything else that's been shot? So the other thing we had to do was like start to map out and construct what the festival was. Uh, who performed on what day? What songs did they perform? How does that match up to what material we have? And that was the that took months and months because it was like, you know, there wasn't a lot of reporting about this festival, and the, and the reporting that did exist didn't go into that detail. There wasn't a lot of uh, uh, news coverage, even local news coverage. So we yeah. we really had to sort of look at the material we had, look at the paperwork we had, do a lot of reporting, do some interviews with some people to figure out what was happening and really just construct the festival again in the context of what happened, um, when did it happen, who was there, um, and then match that to the footage we had and then figure out, okay, how do we want to tell this story? Yeah. Um, and then I think the last and most challenging part of it was the storytelling, which was a mere, a mere talks and pop culture references so he yeah. was like, I want this film to feel like a Public Enemy album. And and our editor didn't know what that meant. But when I translated <laughs> for him, yeah. which was sort of my job as a creative producer, I was like, look, Public Enemy was like a wall of sound. It was layers of samples and beats and vocals on top of each right. other. Josh Pearson, our editor, is a genius. He instantly got it. And so he started tucking in some of the storytelling into the songs and that was it. That was our balance. Yeah. We we found we we found that balance, and it was it was brilliant to also work with someone like Josh, who was just a master at his craft. And yeah. um, and I'm really happy that he's been recognized, uh, even outside of the documentary branch, for for his editing work. Yeah, no, the editing's superb. Um, that made me think actually about this other thought I had, which was that you know we talk about this saying in writing, "Kill your darlings," like like really get rid of the stuff that you think matters. Uh, for the sake of uh, a cohesive project. And you had 40 hours worth of darlings, in my opinion, right? You had 40 hours worth of footage, raw tape that you had to cut down to a 90-minute project. And that's all fire, I'm sure. That's all crazy music. Like, I'm wondering if, you know, you have any plans for the rest of that footage um, or if that footage is sort of just going to be in the vault for a while now. No, I think, you know, it took this long to get this much out. The some people have asked us like why wasn't this a series? It's because no one wanted it as a series. Nobody was offering yeah. money to do a series. Yeah. They didn't know that this was going to work. They they offered just enough money to make a ninety minute documentary, and and now that we have shown that not only that we we can tell the story, but also that this material people want to see, I I hope it opens the door for more to come out. And not only that. I hope other people take the baton and run with telling more stories from that era mm. that every one of those sections could be its own documentary. Uh, there could be a whole documentary on the interplay between the young Lords and the black Panthers and Denise Oliver Velez specifically. Um, so I, I think that, you know, everyone wants everything all at once right now. And it's like, it doesn't work that way. So, so, but I do think that now that we've ha- proven that this story has an audience that other stories will come out, other music will come out, other footage will come out. I feel like we we are in this current extremely inundated period of like 18 limited series like on Netflix about like some 18 different artists, you know, like it just like, it seems like people don't know where to stop with 
the content. And like, it's great footage, but it's like, I almost wanted some of that, the mystery, you know, I wanted some of that left behind. I wanted this, the story, yeah. you know? Uh, so I mean, it's, it's a Nef- balance. Nef- Netflix is engineered that way. Yeah. It's engineered to keep you on the platform. Right. Uh, right. I, I think it's a detriment to the storytelling sometimes. Absolutely. I think some things that are four hours should be 90 minutes. Some things that are eight hours should be two hours. Mm-hmm. Not everything has to be a limited series. And, and, and sometimes you can see the filler. You can feel oh, the for filler. sure. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think we, you know, we wanted to, we wanted to make something that left people wanting more. Because yeah. you can always give them more. Right. But if you come out the gate in your four hours, not everyone's going to watch it. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of uh, finding an audience for the movie, right, or this footage, when it was originally marketed by, I think, Hal Tolchin, right, it was branded as Black Woodstock. I noticed that that's not part of the marketing for this film. Is that intentional? Is that a discussion that you had? We originally were going to call this project Black Woodstock. I think we liked the play on Woodstock and putting black before it and making it different. And, um, and that was our intention going in. And that was internally what we referred to it as. And, um, and then, you know, we, the more we learned about the festival, the more we talked to people that were there, the more we talked to people in Harlem who live there today, we, what we were hearing from the community is that don't call it Black Woodstock. It's, this was its own thing. It has nothing to do with Woodstock. It's don't center this story on another event. It's its own event. It's its own history. And Summer of Soul was, um, was, was a name that uh, one of the co-producers, Robert Fivalent, had sort of jotted down early, early in the process and Amir still wasn't sold on it, but then he was like, oh, let me, my tribute to Public Enemy and Spike Lee, let me do a little parenthetical. And when he came up with the, where the, when the revolution could not be televised, it was just like eureka moment. And, um, and that was pretty cool. That's great. Joseph, I wanted to ask you sort of to wrap things up about your work as a music journalist and sort of the state of this strange world that is music journalism uh like i'm i'm a 24 year old writer slash podcaster slash whatever you want to call it these days and i think there's quite a few people in this community who are still trying to do it as 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 hard as and and crazy as that sounds and i know that you jumped ship like all the way back in 2003 from writing itself you wanted you said that wasn't paying the bills and you went to tv film so i'm just wondering like what advice do you have for someone who wants to be a music journalist like right now don't <laughs> i knew that was coming <laughs> don't be a music journalist <clears throat> uh, um no elaborate. truly, truly don't, don't be a music journalist <laughs> um I, I think it was different back then because music journalism and underground music journalism was really proliferated in the sort of mid 90s and um and then obviously when the internet comes along, it just explodes. Mm-hmm. I think, I don't think there is such a thing as music journalism right now. I, and I also think you're, you're really limiting yourself if you want to be a music journalist right now, because so much of music today is, is about more than music. Mm-hmm. It's about aesthetics and art and, and film and, and, and there's a whole creative 
uh, universe that it's tied to. So I think if you just want to be a music journalist, you're really selling yourself short and you're you're missing the bigger picture. But I think journalism is important. I think arts journalism is important. I think um, the advice I have is why do you want to do it? Ask yourself that. Interrogate that reason. If you just want to do it to get into shows and get free music and and meet artists, then yeah. you're probably not going to have a long, successful career because Absolutely. there are two dozen other writers in your town that will eat you alive. Um, you have to, if you want to be a journalist, you have to be the best at it, or at least one of the best. And I think you're, you do that by being curious, not thinking you know everything, being curious as to why is that sound popular? Where does that come from? How did that happen? Um, I think the mistake I made when I was younger is thinking I knew everything. It's only when I started to get led by my curiosity did I start to do more interesting work. The other thing is, it's it, you know, what you want to do now at 24 may not be what you want to do at 28, you know? Absolutely. It may not be what you want to do at 35. It may not be what you want to do at 40. Like, I think um, the thing I'm proud of when I look back at my journey is that, um, you know, that I was aware enough to say, all right, I, this music journalism thing isn't exciting me like it used to. Um, I need to find something else. What are the things that I like? Well, I like storytelling. I like meeting people who are super creative and figuring out their creative process. And I like mm -hmm. sharing that and making connections for other people. I like exposing new things that I know about that maybe other people don't know about. I like sharing that excitement. So when I sat down and really did that work to figure out what could be next, it led me to television. And that led me to digital and that led me here. It's hard when you're in your 20s to think that there's a lot of future ahead of you, but there's a lot of future ahead of you. So do what you're interested in now. And when it stops being interesting, move on to something else um, yeah. and just follow your curiosity and your interest and your excitement. What 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 excites you? Yeah. The other advice I would give is find your tribe, find the people that you like to make things with, uh, find the people that will give you real criticism to make your work better, not people who are just gas you up and say everything you do is amazing. Find the people that will be like, oh, you know what? I really like the premise of this, but what if you tried it like this? Yeah. Um, I think that's really important to whatever it is you're doing. Yeah. I know you had that sort of in the 90s with with Soul Sides and with some, this from like Caramonica and some of the writers of that time. Like, Do you feel like you almost have the film equivalent of that today, like your tribe? Yeah, I mean, I have people, new people in my life now through this experience specific to film, but my tribe is still John Caramonica and Hua Su and Peter Orlov. And, and these this is still my tribe. Like these are the people, Dave Tompkins, those are the people who, um, my friend Noah Avi, like she is a brilliant photographer. Um, like these are my people that, I shared a little bit of Summer of Soul with when it was being worked on, and they're still the people that are like, oh, this is amazing. And and that's still my tribe. Whether I'm doing film or whether I'm working at the coffee shop around the corner, they're always going to be my tribe. Um, and then there's more film-specific people, right? People who know the craft of filmmaking, who I'm just meeting for the first time, and who have embraced me as part of their tribe. And and that's pretty cool, too. Yeah, totally. Joseph, I'm wondering, was there like a music documentary that you watched growing up that was really formative for you or like even a documentary that you would recommend to somebody who's aspiring in this field? 
there wasn't like a music documentary that I saw when I was younger and said, oh, I want to do this. Right. I, I was, I was obsessed with music. So, uh, you know, when Depeche Mode puts out their VHS cassette of all their videos, like I, I watched that, I bought that, uh, you know, I, I went hunting for the import, uh, Bauhaus live VHS and, and the, and the anthology of all their videos. And, um, you know, I, I've always loved music and music stories, but my favorite movies are movies that where you enter a world, right? Um, I love Wes Anderson movies, even though sometimes they can be a little problematic, but there's no detail in his movies that isn't considered. And Wong Kar Wai, there's, there's not a movie he has ever done where the minute it starts, you don't think, oh, I'm in a different place now. And you can almost feel the colors in the way the cinematography is and the moodiness of it and the emotion of those characters. Like, you are in a world. I, I love documentaries that challenge the form. Um, there's a music documentary about the band Pulp that came out a few years ago that one of, one of the things they did in that documentary that I love is they, they had these little interludes with the characters that were sort of scripted. And I really love that. I was like, Oh, that's cool. You can do that. You don't just have to keep the camera rolling and just capture what you capture. You can actually create a little mini scene with that character that illustrates a little bit of their personality and put that in a documentary and that's something that I then, when I was at the Fader, when we were working on these like short twenty-minute films, we 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 did we we scripted some scenes, almost put music videos in the middle of these documentaries that were scripted, and I love that stuff. So all of that is just from watching a bunch of different shit, and and seeing what other people are doing and then making it your own. That's the history of creativity right there. It's the game. Yeah. yeah, it's anything. Yeah. Well, I certainly entered a world in Summer of Soul. Uh, I've like seen it a few times now, and it's awesome. just transporting me every time. Awesome. Thank you. I, I feel similarly. I feel like also just all the different musical uh, performers have taken me down rabbit holes from watching the movie, and that's one thing that I love and will continue to to do as I kind of you know listen to the soundtrack and all that stuff. So, best of luck to you, man. We're, we're rooting for you, and awesome. super happy you, you made time for this interview. Happy to be here. Thanks so much to Joseph Patel for joining us for this first episode of Nobel's Radio. His movie Summer of Soul is streaming on Hulu. And thanks also to Akash Pandey for co-hosting this with me. He's got a great podcast called South Asians Love Rap. I've been on there. Joseph's been on there. It's a good time. Uh, follow us on Twitter and IG. We're at Nobel's blog. And of course, read what we're writing at nobels.blog. This episode of Nobel's Radio was produced by myself, Akash Pandey and Shrikar Parori. Music is by my brother Vasanth Sundaresan. And I'm going to go listen to a bunch of Stevie Wonder now and stop making radio. Thanks so much for listening.